Hello, and welcome to this week's Zetamar podcast. I'm Zetamar editor Tom Bowker, and thank you for listening to the Zetamar podcast. I hope you find it as interesting to listen to as I do to make. Our feature interview this week is with Charlie Robertson, the global chief economist at Renaissance Capital, an investment bank focused on emerging markets. And Charlie's particular focus for the last decade has been on Africa. He's got a new book out on what he's learned over the years, and he explained one of the things he's currently concerned about, how in a global context of rising interest rates, countries with low levels of education and high levels of fertility, like Mozambique, could be heading for another debt crisis. Before we come to that though, a look at some of the biggest news stories from the last week. Indian coal miner Jindal has informed the Mozambican government that it will stop exporting coal through the port of Beira, switching instead to send coal from its Tarozi mine to the coal export terminal at Nakala. Jindal has operated the Tarozi mine in Tet province since its inauguration in 2013, but this year has also bought the Moatiz coaling mining project from Valley, which came with the Nakala Integrated Logistics Corridor of a coal line from Moatiz to Nakala. The switch will mean job losses for Jindal staff in Beira, where the Senna rail line to Beira begins. And the loss of Jindal's business could have grave implications for the coal export terminal at Beira, which was already hit hard by Valley's switch from Beira to Nakala. We now hear analysis from Mozambique journalist Fernando Lima. We asked him what this could mean for the port of Beira and also for CFM, which operates the Senna rail line and the Beira coal terminal. Jindal's decision to opt for uh, Nakala is very bad news for Beira and Sufala in general because these are salaries and uh, working posts that will be lost and also huge investment. The government of Mozambique have invested in the coal terminal at Beira port, have invested heavily on the Senna railway line which at this point has the capacity to move 20 million tons a, a year. And despite in the last few years, they just moved 5 million tons. So these are very bad news, but it's quite natural having Vulcan being a subsidiary of Jindal, that Jindal have taken this decision. I'm not surprised by this decision. Nakala port offers better opportunities. It receives Cape size vessels, 200,000 tons capacity. And uh, of course, even the railway line is in much better condition now going via Nakala. In other news, cotton farming in Cabo Delgado, one of the province's main sources of income, could be at risk due to a potential withdrawal of British company Plexus Cotton a move which could leave thousands of farmers unable to sell their harvests. Plexus Cotton CEO Nick Earlham announced at a meeting in London in late June that the company would be forced to close operations unless they received emergency funding and expressed his worry at the worsening of the insurgency in Capital Gado, stating that banks in Maputo do not want to fund agriculture in the region. Plexus Cotton needed a $2 billion bailout from the government in 2020 to allow it to pay farmers what it owed them for their harvests and to pay striking workers. But they're now saying that the insurgency is making it impossible to carry on. We hear analysis now from Zetamar journalist Tom Gould. The British cotton producer Plexus Cotton has suffered chronic financial difficulties in its operation in Mozambique in recent years. In 2020, 
48,000 farmers united with 100 striking factory workers to demand the company settle its $1.5 million debt for the previous year's unpaid harvest. The dispute was eventually settled with a cash injection from the Mozambican government, but this did not cure Plexus's underlying condition, and two years later, the company is warning it will be forced to close shop in Mozambique completely unless it receives emergency funding. If this funding does not materialise, as many as 50,000 farmers may find themselves with no one to sell their cotton to. Cotton, sometimes dubbed white gold, is theoretically lucrative, but in Mozambique, the industry suffered from high prices and low yields, due in part to water insecurity and poor farming methods. 90% of the country's cotton is produced by smallholders, farming less than a hectare each on average, who sell their produce to one of 12 companies that are licensed as the sole processor of cotton within the area of their concession. These companies have consistently called for greater cotton subsidies to support the industry, but Plexus faces the additional challenge of operating in Cabo Delgado, Mozambique's northern province that has been embroiled in a bloody, protracted conflict with an Islamic state-sponsored insurgency since October 2017. Plexus CEO Nick Earlham claims the cost of operating in the province is now simply unsustainable. Staff reportedly demand danger money just to travel into the region and banks in the national capital Maputo are unwilling to finance any enterprises there amidst the uncertainty of the conflict. Last month, the security situation took a dark turn when insurgents launched a ruthless offensive into the once safe southern district of Cabo Delgado, wantonly beheading civilians and burning villages in a campaign of violence that's already displaced around 20,000 people since the start of June. Many of Plexus's farmers live in the districts of Anquabe, Chur and Maluku, which have borne much of the brunt of recent attacks. Unless emergency funds are procured, Elam says, Plexus may be forced to withdraw from Mozambique in a matter of days. Whether the company's latest crisis is as desperate as it claims, or an exercise in brickmanship to secure further financing, remains to be seen, but there could be no doubt that Cabo Delgado's cotton industry is in a precarious position, and unless a sustainable solution is found, the livelihoods of thousands of farmers hang in the balance. Finally, we turn to a development in the fuel crisis that has been plaguing Mozambique, with the government in Maputo seeming to have heated off a minibus, or Shapa, strike, by introducing a subsidy system. With many people not being entirely sure how this system works, or if it will work, we return to Mozambican journalist Fernando Lima to ask if he thinks the subsidies will be sustainable, with fuel retailers needing prices to rise even further if they're to avoid going out of business. Well, it seems to me that the government is being kind of reactive to the fuel crisis, which is related to the transport crisis in most of the urban centers. In, uh, in Mozambique. And this is reflected in transportation in urban centers because all other prices for provincial transportation, this district transportation are being changed and it doesn't seem that there are unrest or protests related to uh, those price hikes. So people protest in urban areas because transportation is related to the daily activity for families to get income. It seems to me the subsidy policy was an emergency measure. Those subsidies have not been paid uh, yet, so there is a, a pact with the transporters in relation to the subsidy, which also it's causing another problem because most of the transporters, it seems, uh, now, and it's very clear now, 
are completely illegal. So it's very difficult to subsidize an illegal uh, system. In any case, the subsidy policy is just for the next six months. It's based on subsidizing the people, not the bus or minibus owners, precisely because of the illegality uh, issue. An important factor seems that IMF and World Bank turned down their opposition to subsidized policies for transportation and, uh, and precisely the $40 million cushion is being uh, uh, supported by World Bank uh, soft loans. It's not clear yet how the system will work. Government authorities are confident that they will be in place in the next uh, two weeks. It's something to be uh, seen. But the whole system is based on easy transfer banking systems like M-Pesa and other systems being used in other African countries, which are very popular in Mozambique. And most of poor families are now very familiar with uh, those systems. It seems that the specific program for transportation known as FAMBA will be a minor partner in this system, but other systems already in place in conjunction with the cell phone companies seems to me that they will play a crucial role in this system of subsidies. Who will get subsidized is also another important question and uh, we will see what will uh, happen, but at this point is still uh, or the program are still in the clouds because nobody is clear how the system will work. The issue of fuel retailers, it's another tricky component on the whole uh, equation because you have big companies and small uh, companies operating in the Mozambican market. Big companies have a comfortable cushion in order to accommodate price fluctuation, even when prices are under the market price of fuel that have entered in uh, Mozambican ports. Of course, the situation is more dramatic for small companies. They do not have cushions, they do not have bank guarantees to support imports without uh, payment and especially imports that are with higher prices than the prices regulated by uh, by the government and that's the sector that is more agitated and then it's more fluent talking to the media at uh, at this point because they are the ones that are suffering most the problems with the price and uh, the price fluctuations at the end of the day the six months window in which the government is elaborating has in mind that eventually the war can uh, stop in six months and also that prices could have a change in a six months period and the government would eventually face more favorable uh, prices.
Now it's time to turn to this week's feature interview, which is with Charlie Robertson, Chief Economist at Renaissance Capital and author of the new book, The Time-Travelling Economist. So I asked Charlie to just start by introducing himself and where he's coming from. I'm the Chief Economist at Renaissance Capital, um, and we're a bank that tends to, well, tries to, to get investors to, to look into equities or, or bonds to buy them in across Africa, frontier markets, um, in some, some parts of Eastern Europe. And I've been there a good 10 years now, um, and I've just written a book summing up the, the kind of the best of the research pieces that after many years of asking the same questions in Africa, I think, I think I've got a few of the answers. So this is what the book, The Time Travelling Economist, is about. Brilliant. Well, I'm delighted to have you on the Zetamar podcast. Um, I always rush to click your emails when they land in my inbox because I find your analysis of economies in Africa and emerging markets to be original and interesting and often very persuasive. And so I clicked yesterday when you sent me um, a bit of analysis about well, you'll explain what the what the thesis is, but the how debt crises are linked to fertility in emerging markets, um, in particular in the current global monetary climate. But please take it away. I mean, the, the, the peg for the for the for the email I sent out was to do with the interest rate hikes we're just seeing in America and the UK on Thursday. The United States, seventy five basis points, three quarters of a percent on Wednesday. Uh, even seen the Swiss National Bank raise rates. Um, and, and they're all doing that to try and get inflation down um, because they know that, that inflation hits the poorest in societies, the poorest who don't own a house sometimes, which would be going up in price if there's inflation. Uh, it's the poorest who don't have the savings uh, to be able to, to, to manage when prices are going up. Um, they, they haven't got the discretionary income to cut back on. But what, I'm argu- what I was arguing in, in the email was the interest rate hikes are what hurt the poorest countries the most. Um, and the poorest countries have gone out and borrowed quite significantly over the last 10 years, really since the, the hippic debt forgiveness deals of the 2000s. What's happened since then is a lot of countries, not just Africa, South Asia, Southeast Asia as well, have gone out and borrowed. And they've borrowed without that turning into much export generating kind of capacity. I, they haven't built up the export base that'll help pay back the dollar debt that they've been borrowing. So their interest rates are going up, their means to repay haven't gone up. And, and what I was getting out on the fertility story, and this took many years to, to get my head around, actually, was, was I've been trying to work out why interest rates are so high in, in many of the countries I, I follow and, and pay so much attention to. And it does seem to be related to fertility rates. When you've got a large family of four, five, six kids on average, and like everybody's family is that, those families, those parents don't have money at the end of the week after they've fed and clothed their children. They haven't got money at the end of the week to put into the bank. So the bank's got no money to lend out. What little money any bank in the country has got to lend out, it lends out really, really high interest rates, like 20, 25%. So when, when, when investors in America say to Mozambique or Kenya or any other country, we'll lend to you at 8% in dollars, maybe 10% in dollars. Governments jump at that and say, fantastic. It's bearable when the interest rate is 8 or 10%. But when the United States is raising interest rates, people start to demand a much higher rate of countries like Kenya and Mozambique too. And at that point, we start to risk a debt crisis. And that's what's about to unfold. Okay. And... Um... 
bringing this to immediate relevance for Mozambique. And Mozambique has one euro bond out there in the market. It doesn't tend to um, tap international capital markets. Um, it did this one uh, in what became a famous scandal, but the the government has always said, well, we're, we're, we're glad to sort of have our flag now on um, global bond markets and we'll we'll own this, uh, what used to be the Emerton bond. The price that that is set now, right? Or how, how does that, how is that affected by fluctuation well, in? The, the interest rate that gets paid on that bond is set. That's right. Um, but what happens is that the price of the bond goes up or down, depending on whether or not markets think it's going to get repaid. And what we're seeing in countries like Sri Lanka, is that the price of, of those bonds, so what they get exchanged out in the market now is around 40 cents on the dollar. For countries like Pakistan, it's around 60 cents on the dollar. What the market's saying is, we don't think you're going to get paid back in full when this bond finally has to be repaid. And the problem... Okay, yeah. The so problem the relevance of that, is, to the, to the, is to the investors. Sorry, carry on. Yeah. Yes, well, it's the relevance to the investors, but the, the thing is that if you go back to six months ago, September last year, a lot of the countries now, which could, which, which the markets are saying will default, six months ago, the markets weren't saying that. Six months ago, the markets were, had the price of the bonds much, much higher. And what that tells you is that if Pakistan needed to borrow a billion dollars or Nigeria needed to borrow a billion dollars, they could go out and do it in the markets. And that means that they, they won't default because people will lend them new money to repay the old money. But Nigeria had to cancel a bond issue of nearly a billion dollars just a couple of weeks ago. And that means if bonds, as bonds come due in Nigeria, they can't issue a new bond, which means their reserves will start to fall. And as the reserves start to fall, well, you get closer and closer to the point of default, where you can't actually pay it back at all, which is where Sri Lanka's at now. And it's why this, you know, this market turbulence we're seeing is so... It's going to be potentially so much more painful because when a country does default, as Sri Lanka has shown, or if you go to Lebanon a couple of years back, ever since it's been in chaos. Um, you go to Venezuela, again, chaos, extremely high inflation, extremely weak currencies, um, complete loss of confidence in the economic policymakers and, and no investment. And, and, and countries are losing years and years of development as, the, as they run into crisis. So what's um, what's sort of the prescription here? Developing countries can't can't hope that the developed world are going to moderate their monetary policy to in order to suit the suit the needs of developing countries, can they? No, I mean I was I was saying to somebody the other day, somebody was asking what you know, what would happen if there's a U.S. recession. And I said, well, actually, actually that's probably a good thing <laughs> because because then U.S. interest rates have to come down again, and then perhaps some of the some of the pressure which is happening on on foreign borrowers. Uh, comes down a bit too, but no. At the moment, the trouble is that with U.S. inflation at you know eight to nine percent, uh, the Fed still with rates below two percent, you know the, the Fed funds rate, um, they're going to have to be hiking a lot more, and they're going to hike even though a recession is getting priced in by the markets now. So there, there isn't any short-term relief from from hope. For, yeah, from the central banks, as you say. So what what can they do? Well, second option is to hope that the IMF, the World Bank, comes through with some rescue package. And we saw that with the special drawing rights reallocation last year. Um, well, the expansion and some reallocation. But that's, that takes time. Um, and I guess if there's going to be a new bailout, it's probably a year out. And, and the third option then is governments have to hike taxes and cut spending. So this is at a time when currencies are already 
you know, sometimes under pressure. We've seen them weaken a lot in many countries. So inflation's heading up. And at that point, governments have to hike taxes and cut spending. This is a recipe for unrest. Um, we're seeing massive national strike in Tunisia just in the last couple of days about planned spending cuts by the government. But they have to happen. So it's just, uh, it, it just gets really tough now. Yeah, people are getting hammered on, on all sides. Inflation from, from coming from external drivers and then... Uh, Government's having to cut spending internally. I guess yeah, in and- Mozambique, they rolled over their euro bond um, and, and put back repayment of the principal to when they hoped the gas project was going to be online. That now is um, in doubt mainly because of the, the insurgency in, in Cabo Delgado province. But other drivers, the, the, the geopolitical crisis in Russia and Ukraine, mean that that gas project looks probably more likely to go ahead or the, the, you know, the, the, the incentives to really get it going are, are there. Is that, does that yes. tell with your analysis? Yeah, no, no, I, I, mean, I think you're totally right. But I think, I think that the difficulty Mozambique has got is, is more longer term and kind of structural in nature. So, so what the, the time traveling economist is basically saying is you need three things to, to develop. One is an adult literacy rate of, of 70 to 80% if, if you want to industrialize. And, and the latest World Bank figures say Mozambique is about 60. They can grow, but they can't industrialize. They, they need electricity. And Mozambique probably has enough. Uh, and then you need a, this low fertility rate of, of below three kids per woman on average. And when you've got that, you've then got your own local savings. So you don't need foreigners anymore. You don't need foreign money. And Mozambique is, is most definitely nowhere near uh, under three kids per woman. So, so the problem, the problem of the education front has been there for you know, basically since the Civil War. I mean, since the, the war with Portugal and, and, you know, the South African ban. And even before. Yeah. I mean, this is going on for, for an extraordinarily long time. So back in 2011, I, I collected a load of data for 2011 for secondary school enrollment. And what I showed was that in 1971, if you uh, educated less than 30% of your kids at secondary school, you were in poverty 20 years later. And I, I looked at the data in 1991 for all countries in the world, same story. If you didn't get about 25 to 30% at secondary school, then 20 years later, you were in poverty. And in 2011, it was still the same. I, well, I didn't know if it was going to be the same. But what it told me was that Mozambique, with about 26, 27% at secondary school, was likely to be in poverty by 2031. That was 10 years ago. We're halfway there now. Mozambique is still in poverty. And, and the countries that had that less than 30% were countries like Mali, countries like Somalia. Mali's just had a coup in the last 18 months. Guinea just had a coup in the last 18 months. Burkina Faso, Mozambique. Countries that are likely to have civil unrest, insurrections, coups, uh, defaults. So it, it didn't surprise me that the, the, the tuna bond, you know, fell apart. And, and sadly, I mean, I had the... The ambassador from Mozambique asked me in 2013, he said, what would you recommend in, for Mozambique? And I said, well, you've just got to sort out the education numbers. Because until that happens, you're not going to have the political stability that you need. Um, you're not going to have the, the human capital you need to, to develop. Mozambique is going to be a fantastic country when they educate. You know, over 70 to 80% of, of adults can read and write in any language. Four sentences. That's all we need. <laughs> And then Mozambique is on the road to do amazing things, but, but, but they're still not there yet. Right, yes. 
and the education is a lever the government can pull rather than uh, fertility rates, which, unless you're well, China. No, but no, no, you don't want to do that. I mean, I think the Chinese, you know, were, were, were brutal and also uh, they, they unnecessary, sadly. Their, their fertility rate was dropping below three even before the one-child policy, which is tragic. But um, what the government can do on that is, is simple things like a population uh, advisory campaign. It happened in Indonesia in the 80s and the 90s, and there'd be posters on the streets as you walk down the street saying, two goods, two kids, good, or two kids, enough, I think, or something, with a big smiley face of two children. And they were right. just encouraging people. And then secondly, you can, you can distribute uh, contraceptives. Thirdly, you keep girls at school until they're 17, 18. So they don't have the first kid at 14, and maybe the second at 17, and then the third at 21. They have the first at 21 makes a dramatic difference. And, and, and if women have got the chance to work, then there is a, a benefit to them not just having children, which is you know, the traditional story we still see in Niger, which has got all sorts of problems uh, for the next few decades. So governments can do something, and on education has a double benefit of not just improving uh, the prospects for, for economic growth, but also it reduces the fertility rate. And of course they're linked because Lower fertility equals higher savings, and then higher savings means lower interest rates, and lower interest rates means you grow faster. Yeah. Well, it's refreshing to hear a, a really sort of long-term, long-term perspective on how Mozambique could get out of uh, what feels like a real poverty trap that it's in and that it's sometimes difficult to look beyond uh, more immediate timeframes. Yeah, well, well to be fair, the, 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 the demographic, uh, the fertility stuff and the education stuff cannot be resolved in you know, in one president's term or even two. And I think that's why it often gets neglected, sadly. Yes, indeed. Yeah, yeah. Um, tell us a bit more about your book before we finish, Charlie. Yeah, the book is um, out any any day or week now. Um, it should be published in the next few weeks by Palgrave Macmillan, um, the time-travelling economist. And um, they've assured me it should be available globally. Um, so if any country, any city you can't get it, please... Please uh, at me at, at, on Twitter at Rencapman and I will get onto them and, and try and sort out that problem. I mean, it'll be on Amazon and, and downloadable as well. So um, I do do hope you find it interesting. Um, my, my poor family have got quite exhausted by me discovering all these exciting facts that I think are really interesting in the book. Um, I, hope I hope you find them interesting too. Uh, thanks very much for the chat, Tom. That was really cool. Thank you for listening to the Zetamar podcast. Sign up to our newsletter at zetamarnews.substack.com or through our main website, zetamar.com, to receive the podcast by email. And make sure to share, review and subscribe to the Zetamar podcast on your preferred podcast provider. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.